You're listening to the Sports Blog New York podcast. My name is Peter Kennedy, and I am your host. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We have a lot to talk about because the NFL draft is officially over. The Giants and Jets got their guys. We're going to talk about what we think of the draft for the Giants and Jets. Obviously, Saquon Barkley, Sam Darnold being the big names for us here in New York. We're going to break it down with our NFL draft expert, Kevin Kennedy. And then after him, we got John Lucas Duffy joining the SBNY podcast to talk NBA playoffs. LeBron James could not be stopped in Game 7, even though he cramped up. A little bit of up, a little bit of down. Oladipo and the Pacers did their best, but the Cavs are moving on to play the Raptors in the next round of the playoffs. We have a lot to talk about. It's the Sports Blog New York Podcast. If you like what you've been hearing, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, you know where it is. Check it out. Subscribe, rate, review. Tell us what you think. We want to hear from you at NYC on Twitter, at PKennedy2Wise is my personal. And always, thank you for tuning in. But stay tuned. Blog New York podcast, Pete Kennedy, Kevin Kennedy joining in as well to start us off. Kev, what's up, my man? You had a pretty stellar night uh, from a personal level. You know, being a Browns fan, number one, you had the number one pick, the number four pick, a couple other ones later on. But your guy, Baker Mayfield, who you called being the number one pick months ago, I could look up the exact date, maybe while we're talking, but we did a, an NFL draft preview. It had to be, you know, at least eight weeks ago, maybe ten weeks ago, and you had Baker Mayfield going one. I thought you were out of your mind. You're a Browns fan. The guy you wanted went number one. What was Thursday night like for you as a fan? Not even about the draft as a whole, just Browns fan Kevin. How happy were you? Oh, it was great. Um, you know, because I'm happy that they got it right. Because um, you know, I, I did extensive research on him, and I, he was the guy. Uh, I think he had the the lowest amount of red flags outside of height. And uh, he's shown that, you know, height hasn't been an issue. I also uh, threw a couple dollars on him a couple months ago when I had uh, really good odds on him. So that made the the event that much more exciting. And uh, it was cool because he was doing an Instagram live thing. And uh, I kept looking at him when they said before the Browns were on the clock. And he kept looking down at his phone. I'm like, why is he looking at his phone? Why is he looking at his phone? And they said on the clock. And then I saw him answer the phone. I said, and then, uh, you know, me and my dad and my cousin, we all. We all started jumping, and then uh, they announced the pick, and and that was that. It was it was it was great. And that was a story in and of itself of the NFL draft, where the odds of who was going number one. I mean, it changed like crazy. It went it went from early on Thursday morning. Josh Allen was still uh, had the the best odds, I guess, to go number one. All of a sudden, it starts shifting in Baker Mayfield's favor. He started off the day plus three fifty, which for if you're not a betting man, that's really good. That means if you put down a hundred. You're winning $350. He went from plus 350, which was like plus 2,000 two months ago when you're what you were talking about, from plus 2,000 to plus 350. He ended up in like the minus 400 range. I'm not sure what the final number was before the draft started, but he ended up in like the minus 400 range. And then he was just the odds on favor to go number one. And it happened. And, you know, if you told anybody six months ago or in the middle of the college football season that Baker Mayfield was going to be the number one pick, They'd be like, all right, you're riding the Heisman hype train. Like, get off of it. It's Sam Darnold. It's been Darnold the whole time. It's not going to change. But a lot changed, Kev. A lot changed. 
now now is the time where he needs to put in the work to actually be that number one pick. Are you afraid at all, before we move on to the Giants and the Jets, are you afraid at all of the number one pick pressure being too much for him? Or do you think the fact that Tyrod Taylor's there is going to help balance out that crazy expectation? Well, I don't even think it's it's so much Tyrod Taylor. I think it's more Drew Stanton because Tyrod's not really there to help him. Tyrod's there to compete and win football games for them. So when it comes to pressure, I mean, this guy has worked for everything he's had so far, so I don't expect that to change. And the fact that Tyrod's there and is uh, being already called the starter, I think that's just going to give him more motivation to go out there and work even harder. And um, he said it uh, a couple days ago uh, when he was picking out his jersey number. They're like, oh, what number do you want? He was like, oh, I haven't I haven't picked a jersey since high school because when he was a walk-on at Texas Tech, they just gave him a jersey. He didn't even get to pick the number, and that's how he got six, and that's that's why he's stuck, he, he stuck with six because you know, he doesn't care about that. He just cares all about winning football games, and he's going to do whatever it takes. Well, he does care a little bit about his bandana being on point. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting one you, you better believe it <laughs> that's good stuff now nah, man all the best for him i in the beginning i uh i was like get, i was getting too driven by the media narrative and, and really when i hammered down and started watching him and, and looking into him as the the quarterback and not the person i really was way more sold on him being the number one pick and i think it's well deserved hopefully it works out for you browns because goddamn, you guys need a quarterback um <laughs> <laughs> uh, Let's keep this thing moving, though, because we got to talk about the Giants and the Jets. A lot of people are really excited about this Giants draft. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know where I, I stood on this matter for a while, is that I wanted to get a quarterback. I thought the Giants should have looked to get the heir apparent to Eli Manning in this draft when you're drafting number two, and I thought if you weren't going to get him, move down in the draft and bulk up on some picks get some talent, spread out the town a little bit, maybe defensive player here, offensive lineman there, and work with that. Well, the Giants did what a lot of people expected them to do. You also predicted this as well. They went with Saquon Barkley. And now let me say this before I give you the floor. I am never going to be upset about getting a Saquon Barkley on my team. I'm just not. It's insane. I'm very confident he's going to be a quality player, a very good player, in my opinion. Am I going to be a little upset if in five years we look at Sam Darnold and Josh Rosen and maybe Josh Allen and they're all franchise quarterbacks and Eli Manning's retired and we don't have one, I might. I might be a little upset. But like I said, it's very hard to look at Saquon Barkley and be upset about having him on your football team. So I'm not as upset as I thought I may have been with them not going for a quarterback or not trading down. But I'm not completely sold just yet that he's going to change the landscape of this offense. Kevin, you predicted the pick. Do you think this was the right move for the Giants? Do I think it was the right move? I'm not going to say the right move. Do I think it was a bad move? No. When you get a player like Saquon Barkley, it's a similar situation to a guy like you know Zeke Elliott. I think he's far more explosive than a guy like Fournette. So when you get a dynamic player like that at the top of the draft, you, you kind of know what you're getting and you know you're getting a playmaker. So in that capacity, it's it's not going to be a bad move in any regards. Now, is it is it the most optimal move? I mean, that remains to be seen. If you said like a couple of the guys turn out to be studs or, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens there. But I think Based off of just pure players' uh, situation, I think he's one of the best in the draft. And uh, you, re- it's a home run. I mean, 
when you look at it, the guy's going to make plays. He's going to score touchdowns. And at the end of the day, you got to score more than the other team. So he'll, he'll help you do that. Do you think he directly impacts the success of Eli Manning in the next year to two years? Uh, I think that's why they got him. I think they want to stretch out Eli's career as long as they can because good quarterbacks, like you mentioned with the Browns and Jets, they're hard to come by. So uh, Eli's out of excuses now. You know, he, They got another offensive lineman, a guy, Will Hernandez, who I think is terrific. They got him a running back. He's got the receivers. He's got the tight end. Um, the defense is coming along nice. They still got a nice couple pieces in play there. I mean, you know, they're trying to milk it as long as they can with him, and he's out of excuses. So it's, it's you know, I think the window with him is this year, next year, and um, we'll take it from there. When I when I watch uh, tape on Saquon Barkley, the one thing that actually pops out to me the most is not his, his like, physicality or the way he runs the ball uh, in between the tackles or even on outside handoffs. I'm I'm extremely impressed by this man's hands. I think he is going to be an elite pass catcher, uh, and the Giants really haven't had a guy like that. Do you do you predict Saquon Barkley to be a true three down running back, a guy who can be on there third down, kind of like a Zeke Elliott, who can you know help pass protect, can really help in the pass game, and then obviously do the bread and butter of being able to run the ball. Yeah, I think he's closer to like a, a David Johnson or a Le'Veon Bell in that capacity where he's gonna. He's going to be able to do a lot of different things for you, and I think that's one of the reasons they took him is because there's really no force to his game outside of the fact that he has, you know, he has a tendency to dance around a little bit in the backfield. He's got to learn that he's 230 pounds and he can use that to run through people instead of around everyone. And I think he will learn that in the NFL because everyone's bigger and faster. So he's going to have to he's going to have to use his power more than necessarily his athleticism at the next level. But he has it, and um, you know, he's he's still going to be a rookie, so. He might not burst necessarily on the scene. I mean, I'm sure he'll be very productive, but there's going to be stuff he's going to have to learn at the next level. And um, you know, I think he's I think he's terrific. I don't think you could really go wrong with him. Maybe could you have gotten more value there too? That's possible. But at the end of the day, he's gonna he's gonna help you win football games. And another guy who hopefully will be helping the Giants win football games is who they drafted at pick number 34. There were some rumors I heard on the radio today that the Giants were actually interested in trying to trade back into the end of the third. I mean, first round because they wanted this particular guy pretty badly and that's will hernandez we got him at 34 he's from you know a school that nobody watched play last year university of texas el paso utep but is will hernandez a type of guy who we can see in the starting lineup come week one? Oh yeah you better believe it this guy's a bully i mean you watch his tape you said it, you play he played at utep so he didn't necessarily play against the best competition but what you saw is exactly what you would expect for a guy his caliber playing against that competition he dominated and um, he's a little bit smaller than, um, you know, a prototypical NFL lineman. That's why I think they were able to get him in the second round because, um, you know, tackles are the premium and he doesn't really have the size to ever play tackle. So I think that's why they did get him because he is a true guard. And, um, you know, he, he's going to he's going to open up lanes. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure the Giants tried to go heavy after uh, Norwell, the guard from the Panthers, but they ended up settling on Solder. And now they got Hernandez to, to fill that void of what they wanted. Norwell do so now your left left side of the line is, is pretty set for you know the next four or five years and you know that that's that's all Barkley needs to run behind this guy if you ever watch videos of him pulling I mean I wouldn't want to be in front of that freight train oh yeah he, he's like you like you said his size isn't incredible from the technical standpoint of height and you know length and all that stuff but he, he's a bit he's a big dude like he's not small he's got more girth I would say than length or anything like that and one thing I, I saw after I started watching some tape after we drafted him, because I'm going to be quite honest, I didn't watch any beforehand, 
he was definitely an attacker as, as an offensive lineman. He was always the best when he was delivering the punch. His pass protection uh, as a guard may not be quite as important as if he was a left tackle, like you said, and he'll never be tasked to play tackle. So I think that's good that his strength is more in the run game and being super physical. So hopefully he can be a guy that is right there next to Solder on our offensive line for years to come, something we needed mightily. Uh, before we move on to the Jets, I have one more pick for the Giants I want to talk about. So a lot of people who I would argue with and debate with, whether it be Twitter, my friends, people on this podcast, they were always telling me when I said I want to draft a quarterback if I'm the Giants, they were like, but what about Davis Webb? Davis Webb might be the guy. He might be the actual heir apparent. The, apparently the coaches like him. The GMs like him. Bada, bada, bada. And, I, and, and to that I would say these are new coaches. This is a new GM. That doesn't mean anything to me. So what I saw with their fourth-round pick drafting Kyle Laletta out of Richmond is that there's now competition for the backup role. Pat Shermer has said he's probably going to be suiting up three quarterbacks or having three quarterbacks on the roster, and he's okay with that. Kyle Laletta is a guy you talked about with me pre-draft. He's from Richmond, which is a small school. They don't play crazy competition. What does this say to you about Davis Webb? What does it say about Kyle Laletta and the Giants quarterback future? Well, I had a lot of Giant fan friends who were like, you can't take quarterback. You got Davis Webb. You got Davis Webb. You know, show me videos of him throwing on air. I mean, yeah, the guy's big and he has a good arm, but he went in the third round for a reason. And this coaching staff and this front office did not draft him. So they have, they're not going to put all their eggs in a Davis Webb, Davis Webb basket, if you will. So I like Valletta a lot, personally. I like him in the fourth round. I like him ten times more than Allen at seven or whatever the hell they – they ended up doing there because I think, like I like I mentioned with Mayfield, football is played. You know, it's played between the ears. It's not played below the neck. So while other guys like Rudolph or Allen may have more physical talent, I mean, this guy, I read that he was he was third on on teams board in in, in terms of uh, mental capacity behind Mayfield and Rosen. They said he's a quick processor. He's uh you know he's, he's a quick decision maker. I mean, I don't really put put much weight in the Senior Bowl, but he was the best quarterback on that field for that game. I believe he won the um, actual MVP of the Senior Bowl, correct? Yeah, it was either him or Mike White. I, I forgot exactly which one. It could have been him. Right. Um, but he he played really well. He's very decisive. He's got he's you know he's got this he's got the size. He's six three two twenty. He's got the arm. He can move around a little bit. Um, you know, and these small school guys that they're gritty. A lot of them they got to work to to where they are, and that's why you know you see a guy like Garoppolo or. Or a guy like Loretta, they may be above other guys in the mental aspect just because they want to work that much harder. And um, I don't know exactly how he ended up at Richmond, but I, I like him more than Allen and Rudolph personally. Well, yeah, I mean, when you said it uh, when we were recording our draft preview that you actually had him higher on your quarterback board than some of these other guys, I kind of thought you were being facetious, but it seems you were being quite serious and so were the Giants. The Giants clearly like this guy, and now they're going to be putting him in direct competition. Quickly, 10-second uh, answer. Will he be the backup at any point this year, or do you believe that to be Davis Webb's spot? I mean, I, I would say uh, I would bet on Loveletta, but, um, I mean, Webb's been there, so he has more uh, experience in the, in the system. So it'll pro- Probably by default it'll be Webb, but I think this goes to show <laughs> That the future, Maybe as the year goes on. Right, that the future quarterback of the Giants is not set in stone and Webb has nothing locked up. I think that's something we can take for sure. Um, another person to, to segue here who does have the future position locked up at quarterback, if we go not even cross town, just cross locker room, from the Giants to the Jets, the Jets got Sam Darnold. So I'm going to preface uh, with this and then you could take over. When the Jets moved up from 6-3, to three, 
whether what, what what was it like a month ago, a month and a half ago, whatever it was. If on that day, I said to a Jets fan, by moving from six to three, you are going to be gifted Sam Darnold as your first pick in the NFL draft. I don't know if there's a Jets fan in this universe who would have said, I'm out. They all would have said, I'm in. We're going to get Darnold. He's supposed to be the number one guy. But whatever happened in that month and a half, in that span, it was Allen going to be number one, then Mayfield, and clearly it was Mayfield. How happy should a Jets fan be that they got Sam Darnold at number three? I mean, a lot of the national media guys had him as as the guy. I mean, so... If you look at that, I mean, for for that many people to be on this guy as a top quarterback, I mean, that, that's that got to say volumes about the kid. Um, he's got the demeanor you would like. He's got uh, all the physical attributes. He's got to do a lot of um, cleaning up with his mechanical footwork and all that stuff. I don't think he'll ever be as smooth as a guy like Rosen. But um, he's a bowler. I mean, he's going he's gonna to make throws that you shouldn't make, and he's going to complete some of them, and, and some of them might be bad. But you're going to live with that because I think there's going to be more good than there is bad. My only issue with him is that, um, I mean, you have McCown and Bridgewater ahead of him. Those two guys aren't exactly the most reliable when it comes to health. So, you know, you might see Sam Darnold this year a little earlier than you would like. Um, I mean, I mean, Jeff fans would love to see him week one, I'm sure. But, I mean, from his development's point of view, he might be best to redshirt a year. So, I mean, we'll, we'll take a wait-and-see attitude with him. But, um, you know, he's got everything you, you would like in a franchise quarterback. So hopefully, you know, like the Browns, they finally, the Jets finally got their guy. So, I mean, to, to make that trade up, they had to be comfortable with more than one guy. They probably had to be comfortable with three guys. So for them to get Darnold, who I don't know if they anticipated when they made the move they were getting him, although I did hear that they did have Mayfield ahead of him. So um, you know, I have a feeling NFL funny. teams were a lot higher on Mayfield than uh, the media was. I think it's pretty funny because the Jets probably moved up from 6-3 to three saying, all right, well, Darnold's going to be going number one. So now as long as we're cool with Mayfield, Allen, or Rosen, we're chilling. <laughs> Basically anyone but Darnold they, they had to sell themselves on, you know? And then it turns out Mayfield goes number one, and then they probably felt like their hands were tied to a certain extent of like, how do we not take this guy? I don't think they could have sold Josh Allen at that position with Darnold on the board. Do you think that had anything to do with it? Because I, I agree. I think Mayfield was their guy in mind when they moved from 6-3. to three. But obviously when he goes off the board at 1, you know, you, re, you retool that board a little bit. Do you think that had something to do with it? Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, he, he, it's hard to say if you would have took Allen over Darnold. I mean, I, I have a tough time taking Allen over Rosen. Me, I don't know me too. We'll get to that. What, uh, <laughs> what the Bills were doing there. But um, Darnold actually didn't have a lot of visits scheduled. He met with the Browns, and then shortly after he met with the Browns, I read the interviews didn't go too well, and then he made himself available to other teams, and that's when he went on and visited the Jets and um, you know a bunch of other teams. So I think uh, as the process went on, I think I think the Jets kind of had an idea of who was going to be available, and um, you know, like I said, a lot of guys had Darnold going number one. I'm sure there was I, voices in the Jets that were saying we got to take Darnold, we got to take Darnold, um, you know, so. They got their guy, and then, you know, you, now you just got to see if it pans out. I mean, five guys go in the first round, and, you know, who knows if any of them will be any good in three years from now. That is always the question, for real. That is always, always the question. Uh, I, I think I think Jet fans should be pleased. I think they should be looking forward to this. And I think one of the diamonds in the rough year is that Sam Darnold will not be the week one quarterback. I think that's good, basically, for any quarterback in this draft. And if there's one quarterback in the draft – 
who should be starting week one, it might be Josh Rosen. And even he has Sam Bradford, who just got signed to a one-year deal out in Arizona. So it looks like possibly none of these guys, maybe Josh Allen will, will, will win that job, but maybe none of these guys will be starting week one, which would be quite the weird flip around because it's all we've heard about for the past month or so. Um, continue with the Jets for a minute because that was a good good touch on Sam Donald there. The the Giant, I mean, the Jets uh, had some other picks, one of which you liked greatly. That's a big defensive tackle for them. What did you like about Shepard? Uh, Nate, yeah, Nathan Shepard, he's a defensive tackle from Fort Hayes State. So he's another small school guy, but he was another one of those guys um, similar to uh, Larry Ogunjobi from last year who went to the Browns in the third round from, I think, Charlotte, UNC. He was, uh, he was you know, he wasn't really looked at highly early in the process, and then he went to the, the Shrine game and, and the Senior Bowl and really started shooting up boards. And the issue with Shepard was he actually got hurt, I think it was this, during the second day of practice at at the Senior Bowl. So he had to drop out because he was really – he, he might have been the top defensive lineman there. I liked him a lot, and I think if maybe he completed the Senior Bowl and continued to turn heads, he could have went um, higher than the third round. But I think he's going to step right in. You know, he's going to replace Wilkerson, I would imagine. Um, yeah, I like I like him a lot. I think he's, he has potential to be a, a very good player at the next level, and uh, I think he'll be – you'll look at him and say, how did that guy go in the third round? That seems to happen a lot in every single draft. It's like, oh, this guy's a rookie. Wait, what round did he get picked in? Oh, the fourth? Like, what? Like, how did that – how did this guy fall so far? But the draft becomes such an inexact science when, you know, you're taking measurables, you're taking some tests on the mind, you know, how people understand the game of football. It becomes very complicated. Another guy who uh, I personally don't know too much about, but he is a Miami tight end. His name is Chris Herndon. That um, seems like a pretty low-risk pick for the Jets, and they don't have a great track record of drafting offensive talent. Any chance this guy's a diamond in the rough? I mean, it remains to be seen. He's coming off a torn MCL. Um, he looks more like a uh, space tight end, based on his, uh, you know, than than a traditional inline tight end. But that's the way the NFL is kind of moving now. They want to get mismatched guys in the slot. Um, so, I mean, if his knee's good to go, hopefully he can produce for them this year. And that, I mean, that's really it. We can go through some more picks for both the Giants and the Jets, but I think we really have all our grounds covered there. Before we, uh, you know, say goodbye to you, Kev, I want to just touch on a couple more things with this draft here. I, I find I find it really interesting that I think these quarterbacks ended up in the best places for themselves. So when I say that, I mean I don't think somebody went to a bad situation. When the Bills ended up trading up, I was like, all right, this is an Allen spot. This is not a Rosen spot. For whatever reason, Rosen and Buffalo just didn't fit. They didn't seem like a good marriage. Sam Darnold seemed like the guy who kind of fit into anywhere, but I think the Jets are a good spot. I think learning under a guy like McCown is never a bad thing. Baker Mayfield, the chip on his shoulder. Cleveland is a spot that needs to be brought out of the ground. Baker seems like he could be that guy. He has the right mentality for it. And then Josh Rosen ends up in Arizona. I mean, talk about a, a place for him to succeed in a dome, good weather, you know, yeah, he's in a tough conference right now, but by the time he's in his prime, who knows where that conference is going to be. But his spot definitely wasn't Buffalo. That was not the good marriage. It seems to be a lot better for Arizona. Was there one fit out of these top four quarterbacks that you liked specifically, or was there one that jumped out to you and maybe had some bad news written on it? Um, personally, I think Josh Allen to Buffalo is a little iffy because, um, you know, I don't think you, you compare it to the other teams um, – with with that all went quarterbacks, they all have guys that have won games at the next level. You know, well, I mean, even if you look at McCown, 
he hasn't really been a winner, but he's played very competent when he's on the field. I know they have Bridgewater to back him up. The Browns got Tyrod. You know, the Cardinals got Bradford. And then you even have Flacco and RG3 down in Baltimore to keep um, to keep Lamar Jackson off the field. But then you look at Buffalo and like the, like the Browns, like the Jets, they've been starved for quarterback play. And I don't think that A.J. McCarron or Nate Peterman uh, if I was a betting man, I wouldn't bet that they would play well enough to keep him off the field, similar to what happened with Glennon last year in Chicago. So, I mean, Allen is a guy who I think needs the most time, and I don't think he's going to get it in Buffalo. But, um, you know, I, I one thing I did like about Allen is um, how genuinely excited he looked when he was drafted because this is a guy that was not scouted you know, at all in college, he went to Juco, he finally got to Wyoming, you know, he worked his tail off. And, you know, I like to, I like to make jokes about him because I think he, he got a little overhyped. I mean, the talent is unrivaled, but to see how excited he was that, you know, he did it, he was a top 10 pick. I mean, that, that I, I felt that really happy for him personally. I think he's a great kid and I hope he does succeed, but, um, you know, the two guys ahead of him aren't really, uh, you know, proven guys at the next level. That seems like it could end up being one of the more hostile uh, quarterback rooms as well. I mean, Agent McCarron is known as a guy who does not lack of confidence. He's kind of chippy himself. He's almost Baker Mayfield at Jace, except he, you know, was recruited by Alabama and won national championships, uh, and obviously didn't have quite the draft expectations that Baker did. But he he's a guy who's confident. He he's a guy who thought he should have been starting in, in Cincinnati for a certain amount of time there. And then also Nate Peterman. I don't know much about him as a person. But I'm sure that guy wants to play, too. So now there's going to be three guys there who want to be on the field. That can be a hostile environment. Maybe not the best place to play. I mean, to learn. But it could be the best place to bring the best out of somebody. It will be interesting. And I just think with Buffalo and Josh Allen, you know, I'm thinking cold weather games. I'm thinking throwing the ball through the wind. I'm thinking strength and and all that big body stuff that Josh Allen has going on. I think that fits with Buffalo. I, for me, at least, that seems to make some sense. And the one thing I love about Josh Rosen to Arizona, because he, he clearly has this chip on his shoulder as well. He came out with that classic line of like, oh, then I'm going to make sure the nine teams who didn't pick me know they made a mistake. Felt a little bit forced for me. It's almost like, you know, he looks up to Aaron Rodgers, a guy who he can be compared to. Aaron Rodgers had that thing, but that's because he thought he should have been like a top five pick, ended up going in the 20s. I mean, Josh Allen was, I mean, Josh Rosen was still a top 10 pick. The team traded up for him. Do you think there was a reason for him to, to show that bitterness, or do you think he's trying to just fit that mold, trying to show people that he wants it that bad? Because sometimes I can't tell how genuine he's being with that stuff. Right, and I, I'll agree with you on that. And, um, you know, I think that's kind of his uh, persona, and you have to be comfortable with that when you take him because he is a, a unique character, and he's kind of rough around the edges in a different way than Mayfield. But when I heard those comments, it, I didn't look at it and say, like, oh, wow, this guy's pissed off. I, I looked at it and said, like, um, you know, I, if I was an Arizona fan, I wouldn't really like that comment because it looked like he didn't want to go there. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I I, I felt like <laughs> he thought he was too good to fall to Arizona when, meanwhile, that probably works out better for them because he's on a better team. Um, I mean, I know they got a, a couple new coaches there and stuff and whatnot. But, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't like that if I was an Arizona fan because, like, like I said with Josh Allen, Josh Allen came out and he looked thrilled just to hear his name called. And, you know, Rosen on the other hand was like more like slighted that he fell to 10. Meanwhile, he himself said, I'd rather go later and go to a good team than go to a 
go to the wrong team early. Right. So, so a little, I mean, little bit contradictory there. That's what I'm saying. So it almost felt like he knew he was going to come with this attitude of saying, like, oh, these teams all passed on me. I'm going to prove them wrong. Like, it's almost like he knew or wanted that to be the narrative when it, when it didn't need to be the narrative because this team traded up for him. They still, yeah, I mean, they, they clearly wanted him. Yeah, he, he got what he wanted when he when he made his original comments back in uh you know back in the winter and then when he when it happened he was like I guess trying to play it off like you know uh he kind of corrected himself he said he didn't mean nine teams made a mistake he means three teams made a mistake because three quarterbacks went ahead of him right and um I mean I guess you gotta like that that he he maybe that'll motivate him a little bit um so I guess we'll say I think that he plays very early this year um not only do this to Bradford's health issues, <laughs> Brad, but um, Bradford would likely be hurt in week three. Yeah. Uh, or maybe getting out of the bus in the first preseason game. Who knows? <laughs> Unfortunately, the sad truth right there. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, if you look at, um, that's one thing that I do like about, um, you know, once again, all the quarterbacks, except for Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson is all of the guys that are playing ahead of them play in a relatively similar scheme. So you're going to look at offenses have to be unique for a guy like Baker Mayfield and an offense also has to be unique for a guy like Tyrod Taylor because they have unique skill sets. And then you look at Sam Darnold. He plays kind of that same reckless way that McCown does. And then if you look at Sam Bradford, who can't move um, because he has no knees, uh, Rosen can't move just because he can't move. So I think from a you know, practice standpoint, running an offense, they're all going to be able to run this similar stuff. And uh, for a guy that has durability issues in, in Rosen, He's got to go against Nadama Kinsu and Aaron Donald twice a year if he ends up starting this year. So, um, you know, if I was him, I would hope maybe not to play right away because I think Sue's on a one-year deal, and I, I wouldn't want to face that team. Yeah, the Rams are loaded with talent. They're a scary team right now. Uh, all right, bring Lamar Jackson into this. First off, pretty cool that uh, Heisman Trophy picked number one overall. Heisman Trophy winner picked 32. Book ending the first round, two Heisman Trophy winners. I think that was the like, first time that's ever happened. And that was really awesome. I think everybody who's a football fan was happy to see Lamar Jackson go in that first round. I mean, he was in the green room. He was waiting. They kept showing him on camera. And he finally got picked. And he got picked to a team where basically, you know, the GMs are putting Joe Flacco on notice. Basically, since they paid that man, he's been very pedestrian. He's been a very average quarterback. He's been fine. But he hasn't been what they wanted from him. Uh, Some could say he's been bad. I'll say I'll I'll be fair here. I think he's been average. Like, he's been... Not horrible. He's just not been good either. Lamar Jackson is now going to maybe light a fire under him, maybe steal the job in a year or two. Who knows? But I think it's a great thing to see with Lamar Jackson uh, going in that first round. Now, Kev, before I let you go, can you just give me uh, a winner for the draft and a loser for the draft? Uh, my winner would be the Buffalo Bills. They got their um, – not the Buffalo Bills. I'm sorry, the Chicago Bears. They got their quarterback last year. They got arguably one of the best players in the draft, and Roquan Smith, and then they got – a center that allowed Cody Whitehair to go back to guard. So they kind of upgrade their offensive line in two places, one pick. And then they got a wide receiver who I'm very high on, Anthony Miller. You pair him with um, Allen Robinson. Hopefully, you know, Kevin White can step on the field and maybe catch a ball for the first time in his career. I think they did an excellent job of building around their young quarterback. And then my loser would be the Raiders. Um, I know they got more research later, but there obviously has to be some issues there with his with his heart for him to fall as far as he did. And their picks um, they didn't really do much for me. Um, they kind of reached on the tackle in Colton Miller. They took uh, 
They took a guy PJ Hole in the second round, another offensive tackle, Arden Key in the in the third round. I mean, none of their picks really stand out. I mean, I saw one person say this on Twitter, and it kind of makes more sense. If you were to take Maurice Hurst and put him into the first round and slide everyone down around, then that would be a good draft. But um, the way that picks fell, I feel like they didn't get the greatest value for their picks. And this is uh, you know Gruden's first draft. In fact, he's a little bit out of touch with where the NFL is going right now. They drafted a punter after they cut one of the best punters in the league because they didn't like his attitude. Um, so, yeah, I think the Raiders are in a weird spot, and hopefully these guys pan out. Yeah, I think there's uh, two camps on John Gruden right now. Coach John Gruden, I should say. Half the people are very concerned about where he is in regards to the modern NFL. And then there's some people who just love Coach Gruden and think he's going to do fine. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And like you said, the draft may have not helped him uh, too, too much. So that's good stuff. Kev, thank you very much. Any last words in the draft before we say goodbye? Uh, I love the Denzel War pick at four. I mean, I know a lot of people thought they were going Bradley Chubb, but um, I think their defensive ends are fine. I think they got a guy that can really shadow a team's number one. So, I mean, I know that pick was a little bit of a shock. I said on the podcast, you know, earlier last week or whatever, I said it wouldn't shock me if he went four and he ended up didn't going four. So um, that was a pick I just wanted to touch on just from my own personal and how about your, bias. Your guy Harold Landry sliding down to the second round. Yeah, he had. Uh, they said he had some type of medical issues. That's why he, he fell, and uh, guys fell because apparently he had some altercations with um, a former Super Bowl champion GM. So um, you know that'll do it. And same thing with Hurst. Hurst was my guy. I think he's going to be a stud if his if his heart holds up, which is very unfortunate for both him and Landry. Yeah, uh, Darius Geist could be a type of guy who we look at, uh, you know, middle of the year and be like, holy shit! Like, how did this guy go so late? He's super talented. Uh, maybe the Redskins, you know, lucked out for him falling after he pissed off a couple other GMs, and you know he might want to keep shoving it in the Eagles' face because that was the, that was the GM you were referencing there. Yeah. All right, Kev. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm glad you you got your quarterback. The Jets got theirs too, and the Giants got a good running back. Man, we'll see how it plays out. Thank you. All right, no problem. Thank you. All right, shout out to my guy Kevin. Thank you so much to Kevin Kennedy coming in here to talk about the draft. But before I bring my man. John Lucas Duffy to talk about the NBA playoffs. Let me just remind you, this is a Sports Block New York podcast. You know that already because you're listening to it right now. My name is Pete Kennedy. I'm the host. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this fine program. You know, iTunes out podcast app. Click subscribe. Drop in some stars. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you like about the show. Maybe what you want to hear some more of. Just let us know. We want to interact with you. Nothing makes doing this show better than when I hear back from the listeners. So thank you so much for listening. But without further ado, John Lucas Duffy joining me to talk NBA playoffs. What's up, dog? How we doing, Pete? I'm doing great. I enjoyed a really fantastic Cavs-Pacers game uh, on Sunday from WFAN Live, which is my new my new side job. I got a couple jobs now going on, but I'm working at Yeah, congrats on that, by the way. Oh, thank you. It's nice to work there, working around a lot of people who like sports, a lot of, a lot of Mets-Yankees, a lot of Giants-Jets, and then also some of the national stuff, uh, you know, wrinkles some feathers as well. So yeah, it, it was I know cool you've only been there about a week. But you have yet you got any cool stories yet? Little interactions with anyone? <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to get fired. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. All right. No, nah, I'm kidding. But it is definitely quite the interesting time. Obviously, I'm there in the midst of Francesa returning, and that's just like not. That's not. <laughs> that's a, electric. Like that's not a secret anymore. Like the promos are already being played on WFN airwaves. So he's coming back, and he's gonna be back on like Tuesday. So. And that's awesome, though, because I, I just I, I remember you told me about it. I was like, damn, it would have been sick if you were there when Francesca was there. Did you know that he was coming back when I said that? 
Um, no, I mean, I didn't find out differently than anybody else. I'm not, I'm not okay. I'm okay. I, well, I was just wondering, like, if people around the office were talking about it openly. Uh, yeah, they are. Know? They definitely are. Uh, and it's funny yeah. because, you know, they worked with him a month ago or two months ago, whatever it was. And now, yeah. like, he retired, but he's back, and now they're going to work with him again. So it's definitely, it's definitely interesting. I'm looking forward to see how, uh, it all turns out in a week, but I don't want to spend too much time on that stuff. We got some basketball to talk about. So let's start off. Well, actually, let me just say this quick. Do a little cleanup. We're going to talk about this Cavs-Pacers game because that was electric. It was close. It was a game seven. It was LeBron James versus the Pacers and Victor Oladipo fighting for every moment to try to win that game. But then after that, run through those Western Conference second-round games, you know, Warriors-Pelicans, uh, Jazz and the Rockets, and then we're going to go finish off with the Cavs-Raptors and Celtics versus the Sixers. But first off, Duff, this game seven was electric. It started off heavily in the Cavs' favor where they were up big early in the first half, and it seemed at first that it was just going to be a LeBron James runaway train, and the Pacers would have no chance, but I I felt like they were really going to make it tight, and they did just that. They really fought. They really, really tried to win that game. They did their best. Before we talk about LeBron and his Game 7 performance and where he belongs in, in history and crap like that, how impressed were you with the Pacers and Victor Oladipo throughout this entire playoff series, and also were you a little disappointed at the end? So I was super impressed. Like Oladipo, I said before these playoffs started, I was like, you know, everyone is talking about the Cavs. First of all, I thought the Cavs were going to win. I did not think it was going to be this close. And, uh, you know, everyone was pointing to the Cavs, you know, where's their playoff experience, blah, blah, blah. And I was kind of saying, you know, what about the Pacers? None of these guys have really been, had serious looks in the playoffs, except like Lance Stevenson. So Oladipo was in the playoffs last year, but he wasn't really doing anything. Cause he was on, you know, on the thunder before he was unleashed and untapped all that potential. So I was really impressed with the way this team was absolutely not scared of the moment. They weren't scared of LeBron. They weren't scared of Cleveland. They didn't care that they didn't have home court. I mean, I'm sure they would have liked it, but they, you know, they proved it. They proved in game one that they could win on the road and Cavs locked them down after that. But I, I honestly would give a lot of credit to Lance Stevenson for that because he, he was kind of like Draymond esque in this series where he was taking the tough defensive assignment on LeBron a lot, getting in his head, rattling him. And that it, it really worked. So like he got a, a tech on LeBron once LeBron pushed him again. He flopped for a foul and got the call. And so it's those little things that you need to do to chip away at LeBron because he's so great. And you just, if you let him get comfortable and play how he's going to play, you don't get, try to get under his skin at least a little bit. It's going to be, it's going to be a real quick series because he's, he's just so dominant, you know, but I I was, I was happy with the Pacers that they fought. They push it to seven. Uh, But at the same time, you're saying like, yeah, they fought back, you know, they were down early. That was true in every game they lost. I felt like they were down almost 20 in every game. Right. And they they would battle back, but they couldn't see, you know, sometimes they would finish the job. Sometimes they wouldn't. And it's just, if you play a consistent game throughout, you you put yourself in a better position to take the lead. Like this game was a four point game at the end, but really down the stretch, the Cavs were up like ten, you know, even with a minute left, and they just kind of scored a bunch of points at the end. You know, the Pacers did and uh, made it look closer than it was. The Cavs kind of had command down the stretch. I think. I mean, shout what, out. What, what shout, about you? Shout out the backdoor cover. I mean, come on. <laughs> the spread was five and a half, and Victor Oladipo, for no apparent reason, shot a three as time expired and hit it, which made them lose by four, a.k.a. backdoor cover. 
Shout out Pacers. I was riding them all series. They ended up uh, in in the in the spread game, Duff. I know. I don't know if you dabble too too much. I know you don't. I know. I understand it, but I don't dabble because I'm just bad. So the Pacers, I rode them every single game. In the series they won the spread series, uh, five to two. By the way, just just saying. Look, good teams win. Great teams cover. Cavs, not a great team. Also, another quick stat. Shout out Kevin Pelton, who's really cool at basketball stats and stuff. This was a that the Pacers had a plus forty margin in this series, right? Right, plus forty. That's insane. They beat the Cavs for the whole series by 40 points. doesn't matter because uh, a win by one is the same as a win by 30. But that's the largest point margin for a team that lost a seven-game series since 1984. So the Pacers were the better team. And that's why when I posed the question to you, I said, were you also left a little bit disappointed in the end? Because they were the better team for the entire playoffs. But what happened today was LeBron James went 11 for 13 in the first half. 11 for 13. He had 28 points in the first half. Couldn't be stopped. He couldn't miss. Fadeaways from the elbow. Didn't even shoot a three until the second half. Was getting to the rim with ease. Also had a, a good handful of assists in the first half. He couldn't be stopped. Oladipo started really slow. He ended up with 30 points. He only had, um, I think I, I might be mistaken here. He might have only had five points in the first half. It was not looking good for him early on. And they fought back, and they fought back. And Darren Collison had a great first half. But the Pacers were a better team. And that's just the crazy thing about the Cavs is that when they click and when LeBron's obviously being LeBron, he just needs one or two or three of those other guys to do a little something-something. Just a little something. And it happened today when he went out with cramps. Kevin Love hit a couple shots in a row. You know, J.R. Smith hit a big three. Tristan Thompson actually showed up. Tristan Thompson played. Tristan Thompson played and showed up. He had more rebounds in the first quarter of today's game than he did in the entire series before this, which is absolutely insane. So I tweeted this before the game, or uh, right when the game started. LeBron's going to be LeBron. You know, a lot of people like to make the NBA only about the stars. And I thought this game was going to come down to, I said, the Corvers, the Loves, the Bogdanoviches, and the Stevensons. And that's what it did. Bojan didn't show up offensively. Yeah, he was tasked of guarding LeBron the whole time. But he only hit one shot, maybe two. I think he hit one maybe late in the second half. Lance Stevenson didn't do much offensively. And Kevin Love hit his shots. Kyle Korver made it one of the greatest passes in his career, probably, uh, to put the ceiling deal on the Pacers late in the fourth quarter. And it, it turned out that Tristan Thompson was one of these other guys, secondary, tertiary guys, who make a huge difference. And now now that the Cavs won this series, they, they're going to face up with the Raptors. If Korver has a good series, if Smith has a series, if Kevin Love has a good series, we can just look at this team and be like, well, bet they're back in the Eastern Conference Finals. And I don't think anybody will be shocked. That's the crazy part for me. I don't, you know, you're talking about his team. You know, they gave him a little bit today, but Bab sent us a great stat. For the first time in uh, LeBron's career, he won a playoff series without any teammate scoring 20 points or more in any of the games. Which is so they insane. had seven games. None of his teammates scored tw- at least 20 points in any one game. That's that stat terrifies me. That's like hard to do, honestly. Like, how did Kevin Love not get twenty once? Because he was shooting forty two percent from field. You know, it's like, ugh. I, I, it's just like astounding. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know if we've ever seen that before. Like, this is the first time it's happened to LeBron. I would love to know other in- instances of this, but I don't think people are going to dig those up because. Well, you know. I, I do know this. This is the twentieth time in his career that he has been the leader for his team in points, rebounds, and assists for an entire playoff series. 
And the next highest was like Larry Bird with six. So he's been he's Tim been, Duncan with six, Larry oh, Bird with five. Yeah, there you go. And and that means he's been doing this. You know, he's been doing this for a while, he's and he's so not stopping good. now. He's not stopping now. Uh, we're gonna get back to this Cavs team. I just want to shout out Victor Oladipo. I mean, what was running around Twitter a lot right after the game? He apparently had texted his trainer. You know, moments after the loss, uh, apparently as soon as he got in the locker room, he texted his trainer, yeah, when are we starting to work for next season? Because like, I need I need to get to another level. I mean, shout out Victor Oladipo. I don't think anybody outside of Indiana, except for Bab, expected him to have such a good year. Shout out Bab. He actually... Shout really, out Bab, for he, sure. He really had confidence in Victor Oladipo. Does he have another level, Duff? Does he have one more step above what he did this year, which was pretty incredible? I think he does. I think he definitely does have another level because most of his game, like when you watch him take people one-on-one off the dribble, it's sort of him just standing at half court and then he just runs in like a dead sprint at their chest and then freezes them, makes them make a move one way or the other, or he'll just go around them. So skill-wise, I think he could definitely tighten his handle. He could definitely, you know, work on being more of a facilitator because that team didn't really have a true point guard. Like Darren Collison was good this year. I I don't really consider him like a true point guard in terms of running an offense and finding others. Uh, He only averaged four assists this season. He, and he averaged 23 points, which is, you know, good, but I could picture him being like a 25, 26 point point game uh, point per game type dude. And, you know, we don't know what this team's going to look like next year, but I think there is another level to his game. Absolutely. What do you think? I agree. I mean, clearly this guy wants to put in the work. This guy wants to be good. Victor Oladipo is not here to mess around any longer. He's not here to play second fiddle. He's not here to not be able to shoot consistently from three, to not be able to facilitate, to not be able to lock up anybody on another team. This guy wants to do it all, and he wants to wear that burden. And I think that that's almost something that Paul George never even did for the Pacers. Paul George was quick to say... And this will be a good segue, I guess, to talk about the Thunder. Paul George was quick to say, like, oh, I should have been the guy who got that last shot. Victor Oladipo's taken that last shot. Victor Oladipo yeah. has proven throughout this series that he wants the ball, that he's going to take the ball, and he's going to do whatever it takes to win. And uh, he also doesn't seem that he gets tired. He doesn't yeah. seem to ever lose some energy. So we'll see how that goes for him. Come, I think come next a lot year. of people – What this, this is uh, also part of the transition. I think a lot of people – you know, they see the transformation that he's gone through. I think having that year with Russ, you know, people talk about, and especially me, we'll talk about, you know, the Russ effect. When people leave, they get better. And Oladipo is a, is a case for that, he, certainly. He might be the example. He, exactly. But I, I think he learned a lot from Russ in terms of what he needs to be an elite competitor, what he needs to be a, an elite athlete and performing at a certain level. And having, you know, say what you want about Russ, but he always has the mindset of I'm going to do everything within my power to win this game. He's such a psychotic competitor in that way, comparable to, you know, Kobe. I think that was important for him to, to learn that. And I think there, this him wanting to reach that next level already, Nike, he was so close. He was so close to knocking off a LeBron, like a team led by LeBron James. He was one game away. He was a couple moments away, realistically. Four points. Yeah. I mean, shout out Victor Oladipo, man. He did he did a real great job, and uh, we'll see where this Pacers team goes from here. They'll be in the mix now. We didn't expect them to be in the mix 
<laughs> coming into the season for sure. But now mm-hmm. we know they'll be in that four range, the five, six range, wherever they may be. Who knows how the rest of the East continues to grow. But they're going to be in that mix now, and largely because Victor Oladipo is the real deal. So shout out to him. But I think it's time we have to talk about the Jazz, move on a little bit, because they really ended up embarrassing the Thunder a little bit by the end of that series. I mean, Duff, what did you see out of that? So the Jazz, who who beat the Thunder in round one, pretty, I mean, they won in six. I picked them to win. I think, uh, did you, who did you have in that series? I had the Thunder in seven. You had the Jazz in yeah. six. I picked the whole first round exactly right. Oh, shout out you. So sh- yeah, shout out me on that one. <laughs> I, um, I had the Blazers, so that's an L for you, boy. Yeah. And uh, so, so what do you think about Game One? Did you, did you, what, some takeaways from the Rockets and Jazz, or anything that particularly impressed you from from Round One against the Thunder? I guess now that we're talking about it, J- James Harden is the most in control basketball player in the league. More so than LeBron James at this point, like right currently, right at this freaking moment, he is so in control on the court. He moves the defense with him, however he wants to set up easy dunks for Clint Capella, to set up wide open threes, and he he'll just he'll lull the defense to sleep with his little through the legs back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, step back three. He is insane, and unless he just gets cold, there's no one who's stopping him. Because you can play great defense on him. Donovan Mitchell contested some of his threes today, and he hits them right in his face. I mean, James Harden at this point is one of the most unstoppable offensive forces I've ever seen in my entire life. And I have no, nothing holds me back from saying that because it's incredible to watch. And I just think he obviously needs some help because he's going to be passing the ball, swinging to shooters. This team is going to play a style that only the Golden State Warriors are going to be able to keep up with. Only a mixture of Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, and Kevin Durant are going to keep up with this team. I love the Utah Jazz. You know that. They're my they're my boys. The Utah Jazz are one of my favorite teams to watch. There's no realm of the universe in which they can keep up scoring with this team. They're going to steal a game, maybe two, just like the Timberwolves did, but it's not going to mean it's a close series. The They're going to win in five or six, the Rockets. There's going to be some blowouts. I assume they're going to win by 10-plus points multiple times. The the mixture of James Harden and Chris Paul is just too good with their very quality role players. I love my Jazz. They've had a great season. They have no chance in this series, Duff. Yeah, I I agree. You know, the Rockets, when they're making shots, the only team that can keep up with them is the Warriors, and that's what Daryl Morley wants. He he wants that high-variance basketball, shoot a lot of threes, score a lot of points. You know, give yourself a chance to, you know, blow teams out. And then, like, if you hit all your shots, you score 140. But, you know, if you hit, like, half, you still score, like, 115. So this was, like, the perfect recipe for them. Shot 53% from three as a team. James Harden, 41 points. I He is incredible to watch one-on-one, like you're talking about, when he's just dancing around. He's putting players on skates. It honestly terrifies me. And I think Rudy, and Ru- I feel like Rudy like, Gobert is terrified to switch onto him at this point. Like, Rudy Gobert is, is meant to be protecting the rim. Like he Maybe defensive player of the year, Rudy Gobert. Right, and he does a pretty decent job contesting shots, running people off the three. When he gets switched out there, I mean, he just stands no chance. When he's They contested a lot Harden. of the threes really tight, even the step backs. Yeah. And he's still just swishing them right in the grill. Like, when he's doing that, you can't do anything about it. So you just... 
you almost become paralyzed when he's just kind of dancing there because you know he has so many moves in his package. He can go left, he can go right, he can just raise up, he'll step backwards. Like you can't get caught leaning anyway. You have to play him completely straight up because sometimes it seems like he prefers to go right even though he's a lefty. And I I just, you can't defend it. It, it, No one can defend it. He's six foot six. He's built like a truck. It's hard to see on television. These guys look like linebackers, but like the one word to describe him would be terrifying. Like I honestly get uncomfortable watching him just dribble out there and he's just trying to assassinate assassinate dudes. And and the crazy thing is he'll slow play it right through the lane. So I know there's one play that, that, that sticks out in my mind where he made a dribble move and he, in theory, when he got past the initial defender, he could have made a, like a, a rush right to the hoop and tried to make a semi-contested layup, which he does on many occasions. But he specifically slowed down for the defender to get closer back, like back closer to him after he mm-hmm. had just beat him. He looks right. He's not even looking towards the hoop, and he could either take a little step back fadeaway from the elbow, but no, he looks off the defender, throws an easy lob to Clint Capella, and he has the easiest two points of his life. It's incredible to watch, and I just don't know how he's going to be stopped other than him getting cold. So this is what I'm going to say, and we got to move on. There will be a game or two where he does shoot, you know, 3 of 14 from 3. That's going to happen, and maybe the Jazz steal 1 or 2, and it may, may go 5 or 6 games in the series, but every other game where he's on fire and can't be stopped, the Jazz stand, zero chance. And Ricky Rubio's hurt. That doesn't help their cause. Uh, Dante Exum had some moments... And he had some moments. He even had some moments making James Harden's life kind of hard. He really did. He had some really good possessions on him. But it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter sometimes. But shout out Donovan Mitchell too. I mean, I'm sure yeah. we'll talk more about the Jazz once they get eliminated, just to give them their homage to a good season. Uh, but I don't think they stand a chance. Um, another team who might not have much to worry about in round two, and I don't want to spend too much time because I want to talk about the Sixers and the Celtics here. But the Warriors and the Pelicans. The Warriors had a pretty easy. Uh, win against the Pelicans in round one. Clay Thompson was shooting the ball just out of his mind. Kevin Durant was probably, on that particular game, the best player on the court, despite some hype about Anthony Davis possibly being the best player in that series. And now Steph Curry's on his way back. Duff, do you think the Pelicans stand a chance here, or, or, or are we saying goodbye early to them? No, I don't think they stand a chance. I think, you know, this is uh, another Warriors in five, or even a sweep. Like, I don't, I don't see it going past five. Um, I was in the camp of Anthony Davis is amazing. And, you know, Sims was going as far to call him the best player in basketball. I repeated it like eight times and he's talking to Rosella. I don't know if I would have said that, uh, but he was certainly the most dominant of the playoffs so far, but the Warriors, they just throw you so many different looks like Draymond and Kevin Looney, even like Kevin Looney was doing a great job at defending Anthony Davis. Draymond always does a great job defending Kevin Durant is now this great rim protector. He had two blocks in that game. So, he had two blocks, Clay had two blocks, Stray had two blocks, and then four other players on the team had a block each. And to go, to go along with just as many steals, I think, total for the team, it was it, – they, people forget how good they are defensively. Like, right. when they were winning 73 games, and even the season before that, when they won their first championship in 2015, I think, and they were the number one offensive team, and that was a lot of fun to see them shooting threes and – running up and down and scoring 120 points a game, but they were the number one defensive team too. And this is the thing that Mark Jackson taught them before Steve Kerr got there. They, you hear Clay say it after, you know, uh, I think when they eliminated the Spurs or maybe it was game four, he said, we have to do, a, you know, we have to consistently do a good job on defense. Cause we know we're a jump shooting team. 
shots come and go. We understand that. But the one thing that can be consistent every night is our defensive effort. And that's a fantastic mindset for any team to have, especially a team that has such a high variance like they do. Yeah. I mean, Clay Thompson's been insane <laughs> and he was really good against the Pelicans. And it's crazy. Like in past years, he's had, a, he's a historically slow starter in the playoffs. And I think Steph not being out or Steph being out and unavailable, it's forced him to like kick it into another gear and say, all right, uh, he psych himself out of it and just say, you know, I usually struggle. This team cannot have that. We need to give our players time to rest. We need to win these games, take all of them seriously because nothing, you know, nothing's going to be given against a, a Spurs system and a really talented Pelicans team. You know, when you talk about Anthony Davis, I think one of the things with the Pelicans getting some love coming into this series that they would, you know, bring it to six or they would make it really close or really compete in a bunch of games. The Pelicans got a really good matchup, it turns out, with the Portland Trailblazers. Portland Trailblazers are a heavy pick-and-roll team where it's just Dame Lillard, C.J. McCollum, a little Shabazz Napier sprinkled in, a little Evan Turner sprinkled in. A lot of pick-and-roll, a lot of one-on-one attacking from a ball handler uh, perspective and Anthony Davis was just able to roam and just wreck everything they wanted to do but the way the Warriors play offensively it's full of ball movement it's filled with off ball movement from guys like Clay Thompson and even Kevin Durant when he's not touching it Draymond Green is the ultimate point forward for that team specifically and they don't run enough pick and roll for Anthony Davis to just come in and wreck it for him to just come mm-hmm. in and really disrupt them or for him to just hang out by the rim and wait for people to come in for layups and him obviously disrupt that. Their their offense is too unique. It's too unselfish, too much on-ball and off-ball movement for them to really compete. I think this is a five-game series as well. I don't even think there's much more to say about it. Yeah, it's it's. I like what you said about the, the Blazers. Like You know where the offense is coming from. You know it's coming from Dane. You know it's coming from CJ. The Warriors, it can come from anyone. They trust each other to make good basketball decisions, make the right play, take the right shot, make the extra pass, you know, find open space. So you, you, you don't know where it's coming. You don't know where the ball is going to go. It's like when you're, when you're trying to hit, when you're playing baseball and you always look for where's the pitcher releasing from, find the release point and get, get, you know, get your eyes on that ball as soon as possible. So you see it coming in and then, you know, the, the, the Blazers were just like, you know, someone who's basically tipping their pitches. You know exactly where it's going and where it's coming from. And the Warriors are like Juan Marichal back in the day. He used to throw, like, <laughs> way over the top, three-quarters, sidearm. And he threw, like, 18 different kinds of pitches. Like, he is that, – that's that type of offense where, you know, Anthony Davis can't really cheat anywhere. It, it's, it's tough to read. I mean, all the guys who the Warriors trust uh, – let's exclude Steph, right? So Steph's probably coming back for game two. But even without Steph Curry – Would you bring him back? Uh, I think you got to bring him back just to get him in the flow to, to get ready for the Rockets. So I th- maybe. So would if, you play him? F- what? How? How many maybe, minutes? I don't know. Twenty, twenty-five minutes in his first game back. Uh, uh, I'm not a doctor. I don't know. We'll see how he feels. <laughs> <laughs> I got to see how he feels. But wait, real quick before we move on to the, back to the Eastern Conference here. Think about. I'm gonna say all these names right now, I'm excluding Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, Andre Iguodala, Sean Livingston, Quinn Cook, David West. All guys. I'm I'm probably even missing somebody here. All guys who the Warriors are extremely confident are going to make the right decisions and make the right plays and make an open shot 
when they're necessary. I mean, outside of Draymond, he's not a great shooter. But Kevon Looney is in that they trust him fully. He, it's it's amazing the growth he's taking. He only had three points, six rebounds, three assists, but he's affecting he the game in so many ways. In twenty four minutes, and he's affecting the game by setting screens off the ball. Obviously, just being wreaking havoc on defense, and that that's it right there. The depth uh, and trust from top to bottom of that roster is just unheralded across the league. Unless maybe you're talking about the Rockets, so. I think we're going to get that matchup we've been waiting for all year, Rockets-Warriors Conference Finals. I'm psyched. Oh, God. Every basketball fan needs to be rooting for that because it's just going to be so amazing. Oh, man. It'll be a good, good time. All right. We are at about an hour and nine minutes here, so let's not spend too much time, but I definitely want to talk a little bit about the Sixers and Celtics and then, obviously, the Cavs and Raptors. Uh, Let's start off with the Sixers-Celtics. So the Sixers are heavy favorites here. They're about minus 420 to win the series, leaving the Celtics at about a plus 300-something odds to win. Brad Stevens might be the MVP of the Celtics so far. I mean, Jalen Brown (laughs) is a little banged up now coming into this series. Terry Rozier now going to be having to deal with Ben Simmons. Jason Tatum, I mean, he's been fine, but he's not some guy you're going to put out there and expect to score 30 points. It's not who he is right now. Are the Sixers going to have a hard time defeating this team. I mean, I know you are big on the Sixers right now. Where where do the where does the trouble come for the Sixers perspective here? I'm not really sure. I, like not to sound too confident or sound like an asshole, but I'm not I'm honestly not too sure where the trouble comes from because like the Celtics greatest strength is their coach and how he throws teams different looks and you know throws these weird rotations and lineups and he matches up strange and whatever. And, you know, the, the, the Sixers just played the heat and that's kind of like Celtics light in terms of offense can come from anywhere. Everyone's got responsibilities and Spolster is going to do all this weird stuff to try to. So it, it was like, a, it was like a dry run before they played the Celtics. I think it's not going to be too different. The Celtics are obviously better than the heat, but I think now the Sixers team's got their feet wet. I'm not worried about like Jalen Brown dominating the series and just taking over. I think historically MB doesn't do amazingly against the Celtics and Al Horford. Al Horford is one of the best defensive big men in the league. But you know, Al Horford's not gonna get the best of him, you know? So it's like maybe they maybe they neutralize each other. So I, I just I, I can't see an avenue for the Celtics who's, who's to win guarding, the series. I really guarding can't. Ben Simmons. Excuse me, who's guarding Ben Simmons? Yeah. Uh, honestly, I, I don't know. I think, that, you know, the best defensive matchup would be Jalen Brown. Marcus Smart? He's too small, but he, you know, we've he'll, he's he'll only he's like 6'5", and he'll guard a center, though. Like, he just doesn't give a shit. But Jalen Brown would be the best matchup. But if you need this guy to be your main offensive, you know, guy, the guy you're going to for all these shots and all this offense – you know, do you really want to get him tired on the defensive end? So it's 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 incredibly difficult. I think their best chance is just to guard Ben Simmons, like with four or five different guys throughout this whole series. Like maybe even put Al Horford on him. You know, because Horford's not going to have to extend and just kind of stand at the at the free throw line and still kind of be a rover on defense. I, I, that would be an interesting look. What do you think? I find it really interesting. They're going to have to mix it up, and I think Brad Stevens will do just that. They're going to throw Marcus Smart, Tyre Rozier, Jason Tatum. When Jalen Brown comes back from his little injury, they'll throw him at him. They're going to throw the kitchen sink at Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. 
But I think what Brad Stevens' best case scenario would be for helping his team compete is to just try to neutralize everybody else because Ben Simmons' success really does kind of depend on some shooters knocking down shots. And if Brad Stevens can really do a great job of running J.J. Redick, Ursan Eliasova, and Bellinelli off the line, which is extremely challenging the way they move off the ball and the way their motor just doesn't stop, that can be a way for the the Celtics to steal a game or two. Because Ben Simmons could make you know all the great finds in the world. If J.J. Redick, Bellinelli, and Eliasova are getting run off the line and not getting comfortable looks for themselves, that can really change a game. That being said, I think what the Celtics' downfall is going to be is not defense and stopping the Sixers. I don't think they're going to be able to score. I don't think they're going to be able to get 90, 95 points a game against the Sixers. The Sixers have proven to be a dynamic and very switchable defensive unit where Ben Simmons is truly the point guard. I know we like to say that LeBron has been like the point guard, whatever, yada, yada, yada. He doesn't guard point guards. He doesn't play point guard specifically. He's just a point forward. Ben Simmons literally is the point guard on the team. Like He starts at one and will guard point guards but can switch onto literally anybody. I am afraid the Celtics will not be able to score. Terry Rozier is not going to average 30 points. Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are not going to average 30 points. They may mix and match a 25-30 point game, you know, one of them will get it every uh, every other game. I don't I don't think they're going to be able to score on the Sixers. I, I, Joel Embiid's too good of a rim protector, and they're too long and dynamic. Like where are their where's their offense coming from? I don't know because that's the other thing about the Sixers. Like when you're trying to neutralize their offense, you forget they're one of the best defensive teams in the in the league. And you know the Celtics were the best, but not by a wide margin. You know the the Jazz were right there at the end. The Sixers, I think, were top four, top five. So there's so much length. You know, I don't see – there's not going to be a lot of wiggle room for Terry Rozier to run around and run amok and shoot over these guys. So, you know, with the the, the Celtics were scoring, I don't know, like 95 points a game, 97 points a game. The Sixers were scoring like 112. So th- it's like a huge gap there. So, And I, I don't know – defensively what they what they were doing off the top of my head but I just can't really see a scenario where the Celtics win I it's just I know they have home court and whatever and Brad Stevens is great but I just think this is a really bad matchup for them there's too much size you know the the this the Celtics have a bad time rebounding against teams and everyone on the Sixers is just on average going to be taller going to be not more physical, but maybe, you know, a little older, a little bit more veteran leadership and guys like JJ and Bellinelli and Ilya Silva, Ilya Silva down there banging bodies. He's been a very underrated piece of the Sixers team and uh, their small ball lineup, which has been, you know, quote unquote, small ball lineup, which has been incredible. Yeah. Their small ball lineup consists of a bunch of big guys. <laughs> they have the tall, their small ball lineup is taller than most regular lineup. <laughs> I mean, it, it, helps, it helps when you're two, point guard 6'10". Yeah, it's two two guys six eleven, one guy's six ten, the other guy's six eight, and JJ Reddick's the shortest one at like six four. Uh, it, it's insane. I mean, Marcus Smart positionless is, basketball. I think I think Brad Stevens and the Celtics will steal one or two, especially at home. They'll definitely be a little bit more favorable. But there was a moment or two in the Heat series where the Sixers looked around that court and said, "Oh my God! Like we're so much better than this team." 
And, yeah. And we're just not going to let it even – we're not even going to give him a, a, a breath of fresh air. We're not going to give him an ounce of hope. And I think there's going to be a point in this series, too. I think the Celtics are really going to compete. They play so hard. They're so well coached. They know what the hell they're doing out there. They're going to steal a game or two, especially at home. But there's going to be a moment. I'm saying, you know, I think they split in Boston the first two games. They split one of those two games. And there's going to be a moment back in Philly when Ben Simmons makes a play or Embiid makes a play, whatever it is, where the Sixers are going to look around and be like, oh, my God, this is in the bag. It's over. And they have no chance. Uh, Yeah, the one thing I worry about with them when I see stuff like that in game five of the Heat series, I was at that game, and you could see that they were not worried. The Heat didn't even care if they won that game. They were just trying to piss everyone off and play dirty. And the one thing I was worried about is the Sixers could have opened that up to like a 20-point lead in the first half, except they were missed. They missed like three layups in the first quarter, four layups. And, uh, you know, eventually in the second half, they just turn it on. It's crazy. And, you know, it's Brett Belichick in the locker room at halftime. Brett it's, Belichick. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's real, dude. All right. I, I, was, I was never been more wrong about a coach. We're clearly both on the Sixers here, and it's tough to yeah. go any other direction. But like I said, I think it will go five or six. The Celtics will steal one or two. But let's just give a, a couple minutes to this Cavs-Raptors series. So let me say this. The Raptors are opening as favorites. They're minus um, – 220 to win the series, which makes them pretty strong favorites, according to Vegas, to win this series. But everything, everything that isn't like happening right now, our history, what we've seen over the past years, what we know about LeBron, what we know about the Raptors, all tells us the Cavs are going to win this series. But what we just saw with the Cavs versus the Pacers, what we saw with the Raptors in moments against the Wizards is that the Raptors are a much better team than the Cavaliers. Without a doubt, no matter how you skin the cat, skin it a million times, the Raptors are better. They're just more talented top to bottom, and it's not particularly close. That being said, Duff, do the Raptors Raptor? Like, do they disappear again? Like, what's going to happen in this series? This is perhaps the most interesting series now in the second round. Yeah, I didn't love the way that they closed out the the Wizards dropping a couple games you know it's it's like Raptors fans are saying you know why aren't you talking about us we're the number one seed we're legit it's like can you just like step on a team's neck one time can you just can you really just do can you can you do everything right for a few games and just really convince us in a playoff series that's what I want I don't want them to be bad they're a good team they're playing modern basketball a lot of credit to Dwayne Casey everyone's been talking about all year I think I like Toronto in this series. And I get burned by this every year, picking against LeBron at some point, it's, uh, except for the past couple of years. But even when he was like his first year back in Cleveland, I, was, I didn't think he would make it to the finals. That was the last time I picked against him, and I'm doing it again now. I think, I think the Toronto takes this. They got home court. This is basically Pacers, you know, you know, Pacers, but like a better version kind of where it's the, a team that's more well-rounded than the Cavaliers. And, I don't, you know, people weren't talking about how the Pacers were particularly well-rounded during the regular season. It's just by comparison, I think they looked great uh, compared to the Cavaliers supporting crew. And I was worried about guys like OG Ananobi and Pascal Siakam going to have to guard LeBron James because OG's so young, Pascal's young. You know, Pascal doesn't really give you anything on the offensive end. But I don't think that matters too much anymore because I've seen what the Cavaliers players can give you on the offensive end. 
And I'm definitely not worried about that. I will sacrifice one offensive player to try to give LeBron a bunch of different looks and, and throw our best perimeter defenders at him. What do you think? I think there's a chance that this win over the Pacers, the Game 7 momentum, can drag some productive basketball out of the likes of Corver, Love, and Tristan Thompson, and J.R. Smith. I think what happened in the beginning of the series, we were looking at Jordan Clarkson and Rodney Hood and Larry Nance as the guys who needed to step up to you know help get this team over the hump in the first round. That's not going to be the case. Those are not the important guys. Rodney Hood, Jordan Clarkson, Nance, they may be the young guys. They may be the only uh, glimpse of a future that the Cavs have, even though it's not super bright. The guys who are going to help LeBron James win this series, and I'm saying it like that very purposely, because like LeBron James is going to do his part. Like He's going to score 40 points, or he's going to do 30-10-10, and 10, or whatever he's going to do. You're not going to look at a LeBron James performance and be like, well, he didn't do enough. You know, like He's doing enough. Night in, night out. Well, I don't know about that because in game six, he only had like 16 shot attempts. So sometimes That's, he gets passive that like is, that. That is correct. And they got smoked. They lost by like 30 points that game. Yep. That, that is yeah, so fair. maybe he was on the bench and he didn't get like have an opportunity to get up more shots. Like, so that's also part of it. That, that game may take place. Like that may happen for a game. But any game that the Cavs have re- remotely a chance to win, it'll be because LeBron did his LeBron share, which is an enormous share. But the only way they get over that hump is if a couple of the three-point shooters are hitting shots. If Tristan Thompson is getting eight offensive rebounds like he did against the Pacers in Game 7, the guys who they need to succeed are not Nance, Clarkson, Hood, like we thought coming into Game 1 of the first round. It's Corver, it's Hill, it's Love, it's Thompson, it's J.R. Smith. The old heads, LeBron needs these old heads to show up. I don't know if they have the stamina to go seven with Toronto. That's where I'm worried. Like the Cavs, yeah. are, the Cavs are going to be the better team for two or three games. But can they it's go ter- seven? It's terrifying to me that Kyle Korver is like the second most important player on the Cavaliers. Scary. But, like, but, but, but they when he, need him to sh- make shots and space the floor desperately. But when he hits shots, they are extremely dynamic. It changes everything. You see it. You saw it in game. You know, I think it was game five yep. in Cleveland, where it was close down the stretch and the Pacers. You know, we're, we're guarding LeBron tight, and then Corver hits a couple shots in a row, and then you see the third possession. Everyone cheats over to Corver. LeBron's got a wide open, you know, wide, wide open to the to the uh, to the basket for an easy layup. So, I like at heart, I harp on shooting, and you know, like that basketball is sort of a math equation at this point. You need three point shooting to get you there. It's not just to shoot, make and take threes. It's what that does to open up the floor for everyone else. And, like, the Cavs just don't have that on a consistent basis. And, you know, I don't know if the Raptors do necessarily, but they are more likely to find a guy who's going to be doing that on any given night just because they have more darts to throw. They have a deeper bench and just more teams, more players who are going to contribute. What do you expect from DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry in the series? I mean, I expect DeMar DeRozan to be DeMar DeRozan. I think he's pretty consistent in, in general. I just... Kyle Lowry had a couple games in the last series where he would, he disappeared a little bit and it made me sort of nervous. And I like Kyle. He's, you know, he's a Nova guy. Shout out Nova. And I just am, uh, you know, I, who guards? Who, who's going to guard DeMar DeRozan on the JR, on a, JR, JR probably? Yeah, it has to be. 
I mean, I'm going to take, I, I think DeRozan is just a better version of uh, Victor Oladipo. And De, the knock on DeRozan is three-point shooting. He's shooting 38, 38.5% from three in, in uh, the playoffs so far in those six games they had against Which is like the a, Wizards. That's a sincere jump for him, too. That's that's big. Yeah. And it. I mean, he's taken four a game, too. So I believe in DeMar DeRozan. I'm, I'm talking myself into this Raptors team. I think this might be the year they finally get the monkey off their back. I just it has to be, right? Like it has to be. Think about this If it's team not now, it's never. Let me I'm just going to this, this is like a, the Celtics are not going to be this bad next year and the Sixers are just going to get better. At at an hour and 24 minutes into this podcast, which is too long, you have to go watch Westworld. I'm sorry. <laughs> I I'm just going to name a bunch of names here and you tell me the advantages that the Cavs have. All right, Jonas Valančiūnas, Serge Ibaka, Pascal Siakam or OG Ananobi, DeMar DeRozan, Kyle Lowry, go to the backups, Fred Van Fleet. CJ Miles, where are the wins? Where are the matchup wins for the Cavs? The, Is Van Vliet back? Yeah, he's back now. Those right, those matchup wins don't really exist for the Cavs. They don't. I, I mean, there's, and LeBron did this to himself. One. He's the one who put this team around him. We like we like to joke about you know player, coach, GM, LeBron, but you know he, he's got his hand in all these things and. I guess you could say, sure, he's the best player. It's all going to fall on him anyway. And he realized that he probably uses as leverage because you're going to do what he, you want him. He wants you to do because he's LeBron and you're not going to turn down the best player in the NBA. But this is, he, you know, he sort of dug his own grave in a way. And those contracts with JR and Tristan Thompson and that trade for Corver starting to look real bad. Like if they make it past Toronto, there's no way they're making it past the Sixers. And then that's their season. Like this team doesn't make it to the finals. I I couldn't tell you why he's going to come back. I there's been no compelling argument for why he would be a Cleveland Cavalier season. I don't see it. All right, make your pick, Duff. Who? How many games? Raptors and what? I'm going Raptors. I'm going Raptors in seven. I think this is going to be a lot of home court wins for both teams until you know the very end. And I think oh. I, I don't think a, a team is going to win on the road. I'm stressed out right now because, like we mentioned earlier, uh, I'm working at WFAN now a little bit on the side. Chris Moore is a host there, and he basically kept walking back and forth during the the game today and saying, you know, it's like someone predicting the stock market is going to crash. You can just keep saying it's going to crash and no one will care, and then one day you'll get it right. And he's like, that's the same thing for predicting the the Cavs are going to lose. Hey, you can just keep saying they're going to lose, and one, one day you'll have to be right. Yeah. Is that day with the Raptors? and? It's just so hard. Before the playoffs started, I picked the Cavs to win this in seven. I think they're just going to keep winning this series. And I'm, like they they beat the Pacers by the skin of their teeth. I think ugh, I hate even saying it because it's stupid. And there's no like there's no concrete reason for me to believe this. The Cavs are not the better team, Duff. And the better teams usually win. And with all that being said, Cavs in seven. I know. I feel. I, but I say the same thing. I'm like, yeah, Raptors. And like, because uh, it's still it's still the Raptors. Like, you look at this team. <sighs> if you told me that this, you take take the cities, take the names away. It's just you know, like three sisters of the blind versus the children of the poor. And it's just like those teams. And you show me the lineup. I'm like, oh, this team's better. Oh wait, that team's the Raptors. Oh fuck, uh, I don't know. <laughs> oh man, dude. I... Exactly. It's just oh. like I feel no like this. This series just feels gross to me. I don't know how how to act about it. 
And it is the most compelling second round series, probably by far, if you ask me. Uh, but Duff, man, go enjoy Westworld. I'm sorry for keeping you so long. We ended up getting off on some tangents there. What are you gonna do? I know. We always say we're gonna like, yeah, let's keep it short on a couple things, and then it's we just can't we can't filter ourselves when it comes to basketball. We should get going. God, it's impossible. Might have to cut this thing up in two pieces. We'll see. <laughs> Yikers. <laughs> All right, dude. Thank you so much. This is Sports Blog New York Podcast. Pete Kennedy, John Lucas Duffy. Y'all have a great day. Keep enjoying the NBA playoffs. And also, you know, the Yankees are on a pretty sick streak right now. Shout out Yankees. Shout out Mets. They're yeah, hand- they're- I had to listen to Rob. Every time. Oh, Red Sox are losing. The Yankees are winning by the uh, weekend. Yeah. Mets are hanging around, too. But that's it. Sports Blog New York Podcast. Y'all have a great day.